0: beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters. Last week, Wednesday, on October the 8th, there was an important anniversary in the churches of our Lord Jesus Christ. On that date, in the year 451 after Christ, a very important council or synod was held. It became known as the Council of Chalcedon. Elders, deacons, and ministers from all over the empire came together to deal with a very important doctrine, namely the doctrine concerning the two natures of Christ. And you all know what the two natures of Christ refer to, don't you? Especially the catechism students will remember what it is about. It is about the human nature of the Lord Jesus Christ, And about his divine nature. It is about the fact that he is true man and about the fact that at the same time he is true God. In the year 325 after Christ that doctrine had already been dealt with in the Council of Nicaea. At that time the church had to deal with the heresies of Arius who denied that Jesus Christ aside from being a man is also God. And so it appeared that at that time that issue was settled. However, the controversy did not end there. There remained confusion about the fact that the Lord Jesus could be both man and God at the same time. How can one person be both man and God simultaneously? Theologians wrote about it and spoke about it, and they all had different opinions. There was one group which said that the divine word of Christ took place took the place of Jesus' human mind and will, so that his divine nature was always predominant. Others argued back that if Jesus did not have a human mind and a human will, that then he could not be fully human. Another group was of the opinion that when Christ was born, his divine nature and his human nature were so combined in the person of Christ that he became a uniquely new individual, some kind of God man. But in this way, he was neither God nor man. Again, others thought in reaction to this that the divine and human natures of the Lord Jesus were separate in such a way that he was like two separate persons. Even the ordinary people in the streets got into this discussion. People from all over the Roman Empire, whether they lived in the East or in the West, got into the act. And you may think that that's kind of strange. Why would people talk about such things? Well, that is because this had become not only a theological issue but also a political one. Today, just before a federal election, you can see how politics can ignite people's passions. When you are very partisan, then you are unable to see clearly the other side of an issue. You want your side to win. And so you entrench yourself in your own position, and you don't want another side to be heard. That was the same thing in the discussion about the two natures of Christ. There were different political groups, with each conflicting group being associated with a particular city. The city of Antioch supported one group, Alexandria another, Rome yet another, and Constantinople yet another one again. And so we see that political rivalry became entangled in theological debate. That is because in those days, politics and religion were not deemed to be separate from each other. And so the government also meddled in the affairs of the church. Now, the emperor, Marcion, was not very happy about this conflict. He did not want rivalry and discord in the empire. And so he ordered that a council be held in Chalcedon, a town close to Constantinople. Constantinople. It was at that council where it was clearly stated that Christ is one person who has two natures. He has a human nature and he has a divine nature. It is from that council that we get the statements in the Athanasian Creed which we just read together. To some, the language of the creed may be somewhat obscure. So let me try to state it in everyday terms what Chalcedon decided Christ is one person but he is one person not because God and human flesh became mixed together but because the son of God who is God himself took on human nature and so there is no confusion between the one nature namely that he is God and the other nature namely that he is man They are two separate natures. And so the one man, Jesus Christ, has both a human nature and a divine nature. The article explains this further by stating that man also himself is made up of two parts, namely of a soul and of flesh. Nevertheless, he is one man. The same thing is true of Christ. The one man, Jesus Christ, is both man and man. And God at the same time. Now you may say, why is this so important? Why do we deal with that this afternoon? Well, if we do not confess that the Lord Jesus Christ is both true God and true man, then our faith would be in vain. And then we would have no hope. And Then we would not be able to be delivered from our misery. And Then we would not be able to taste heavenly bliss. We need to confess Christ as the only mediator between God and man, who is both true God and true man. That's also what I will preach to you about this afternoon. The theme for this afternoon's service is as follows. God has given us Jesus Christ, who is both God and man, as our only mediator and savior. Let me state that once again because I've expanded a little bit from what you have in, the, in your uh, liturgy sheets. God has given us Christ, Jesus Christ, who is both God and man as our only mediator and savior. That's the theme. We may be thankful to the early church that these issues were dealt with so decisively. It's unfortunate, however, that the issue concerning the two natures of Christ became politicized, for at that time there came a split between the churches in those days. It is from that day on that the Coptic churches came into existence. That happened not so much because of the theological issue, but because of the political issues. However, in the final analysis, the Christians did come to an agreement, and the theological issue is what is important for us today. Again, why is that so important? Let me try to explain that to you from our own earthly experiences. There is one thing that is impossible for you and for me to avoid in our lives. And that is not to be in dispute with someone about something. There is always conflict in our lives. We are often in conflict situations whether we like it or not. Also, you young people should be able to relate to that. Sometimes it happens that a friend of yours does nothing but slander your name. He or she is telling all kinds of things about you to others which are not true. Your friend is doing this out of anger or jealousy or because she has been hurt. Or it could be that she is just mean by nature. And you feel awful, for you think that everybody believes her and you want it to stop, but you don't know how to stop it. You don't know who to turn to. And you also know that some of the things she is saying about you have an element of truth to it. In a situation like that, wouldn't you love to be able to call on somebody who can straighten all this out? Somebody who is totally neutral and who has absolute influence over the outcome. Somebody who is acceptable to both you and your adversary. A person so powerful that he can make everything right. It is impossible for you to be able to find such a person here on earth. Or sure, it may be that you can find somebody that fits the bill somewhat. Perhaps a mutual friend or a wise elder or relative. but you know deep in your heart and in the final analysis, they won't be able to do the trick. And there will always be certain things that can never be straightened out. There always remain some bad feelings, and you will never find complete justice. Now that's also what Paul writes about in his first letter to the Corinthians. There he asks the rhetorical question, as we read together, where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? And then he points out how much superior God is to man. There is no comparison. By nature, he says, man is basically a fool when it comes right down to it, man has no wisdom of his own. Nobody here on earth can settle disputes in such a way that there is a perfect resolution. Why do you think that is? It is because all men are depraved. A human being by nature is unable to claim total neutrality. By nature, we are all self-serving. By nature, we are blind to the sins of others and especially to our own sins and shortcomings. By nature, we use all the facts to serve us or our own position. By nature, we want to smooth things over rather than to deal with the heart of the matter. And so here on earth, brothers and sisters, boys and girls, you will never find true satisfaction. Now, as you know, in the last four Lord's days, we dealt with the depth of the depravity of man. However, because we are so selfish, so self-centered, we try to weasel out of our own responsibility and predicament. In Lord's Day 3, we try to blame God by asking whether or not God made man so wicked or perverse. And then after that, we pretended that man is not as bad as he's made out to be, for we ask, are we then so corrupt that we are totally incapable of doing any good? Next, we try to weasel out of our responsibility by appealing to our inability to do any good. Doesn't God do us an injustice by requiring from us what we cannot do? And when that doesn't work, we try to play off God's mercy with his justice. Surely, he is a just God, but isn't he also merciful? And then in Lord's Day 5, the point is made that perhaps man himself can do something about his own sinful state. Isn't there a man or another creature here on earth who could pay for our sins? And so you see that we as human beings always try to minimize our responsibility and to twist things in our favor. All human beings are like that. I'm like that, you're like that. We are no different. But now here in Lord's Day 6, we are introduced to the perfect mediator. Now there are those who criticize this Lord's Day for being too analytical and logical. And therefore, this Lord's Day and the previous ones are not the most popular Lord's Days of the Heidelberg Catechism. The Heidelberg Catechism seems seems to treat this topic in a very scholastic or school-like manner. They say that the Bible does not teach us the doctrine of the need for a mediator in this way. The Bible does not, first of all, give us a list of requirements for a mediator and then finally ask, do you realize whom you need? You need the Lord Jesus. No, so they say, the Bible first presents that mediator and then bit by bit teaches us to know him better so that we learn what he, who he really is and that he is the one who we need. Is that a just criticism? Well, we should not forget that the catechism is meant to teach us about God in a systematic way. The catechism is a teaching tool. It is a teaching tool for the youth. It is a teaching tool for you and for me. And that is why every year we go through the 52 Lord's Days. Because we have to look at things from different angles. Last time I preached on this Lord's Day, I dealt with a different angle. And therefore, as such, that criticism is unjust. And yet, it is true that here in this Lord's Day, we come to a most wonderful revelation. We come here in Lord's Day 6 to the wonderful revelation that the Lord Jesus Christ is the answer to everything. The knowledge concerning our mediator Jesus Christ is a beam of light in the midst of darkness. It is a message of great joy and hope in the midst of misery. And that is what should be expressed here in this Lord's Day. Do you want an end to conflict in your life? Do you want an end to misery? Do you want to have an end to your feelings of hopelessness? Then there is only one person who can do that, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. As answer 19 shows, it has always been about the Lord Jesus Christ. From the very moment after the fall into sin to today and into eternity, he is the Savior of the world. And that is why the Catechism also takes us first to paradise. It states in the Catechism that after the fall into sin, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ was com- was proclaimed at that time, namely that the seed of the woman would crush the seed of the serpent. That is, Christ would defeat Satan and would defeat everything that he stands for. And then further on in the Old Testament, that was made the more clear by the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then by the Old Testament prophets, The Lord Jesus Christ was proclaimed by them in all their prophecies and writings. And also, it says in the Catechism, the sacrifices and ceremonies of the law, they all pointed to Christ. The whole Old Testament points to the Lord Jesus Christ, for He is the perfect mediator. Why is He such a perfect mediator? Because He's able to stay neutral. No, that's the kind of mediator we look for in the world. And don't think you'll be able to find a perfect, neutral person. It's impossible. We want somebody who is totally objective, somebody who does not take sight. You won't find such a person here on earth. But thank God that is not the kind of mediator we look for in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is not neutral. He is not neutral in a battle over against evil. He is not neutral in our conflict between God, the Father, and us. No, like the Father and the Holy Spirit, the Lord Jesus Christ is God. And because Christ is God, he has 100% interest of God in mind it is important for you and for me to confess that for only God is powerful enough to be able to save us from our sins where does that leave us well he is also true man and in that way as true man he he represents you and me perfectly as well he has our interests in mind 100% as well. Only such a mediator can deliver you from injustice and from misery. He has 100% interest in both sides of the dispute. And that makes him the perfect mediator. But you may say, well, how does that help me now? We're still in conflict all the time. There is still all that misery within us and outside of us. But now look at what it says in answer 18. It quotes from 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30 about the Lord Jesus Christ, that he has become our wisdom from God. That is your gift from God right now. That is God's present to you as long as you want to accept it with a believing heart. And it is the most wonderful present you can ever receive. You will see what I mean once we unwrap that beautiful present. First of all, we are told that he is our wisdom. Wisdom has to do with skill. It has to do with the skill of life, not just here on earth, but with regard to eternal life. When you are wise, then you know how to deal with sin, your own sin and the sin of others. And then you know how to deal with conflict as well. Now you know, as we saw this morning, how to be thankful in the midst of miserable circumstances. For you see, the Lord Jesus Christ was wise in the way that he dealt with your sins and my sins. Through faith, he restored you to a loving relationship between God the Father and yourself, and once again, he did that as perfect mediator and now, what can you do when you are in a dispute? Well, then you can give it all over to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is your wisdom. for the Lord Jesus teaches you first of all how to deal with your own sins whenever there is a dispute in your life, whenever there is turmoil in your life it is because we ourselves are always part of the problem and the lord jesus christ teaches you how to deal with yourself first he is totally wise he teaches you to look at your own sins and to ask god for forgiveness and he will as a matter of fact he is anxious to forgive you and that is why it will also make it so much easier for you to forgive the sins of others that's the wisdom of God a worldly person doesn't have that kind of wisdom for Paul says that unbelievers also look for wisdom But they look for the wisdom of this world. Therefore Paul says in verse 23 that he preaches Christ crucified. Christ is a stumbling block to Jews and he is foolishness to the Gentiles. Christ is foolishness to the world in other words. But the reality is that Christ is the answer to everything. He is the answer to everything in your life. He is the answer to all your problems. An unbeliever, a worldly person, doesn't believe that. He doesn't understand that. He thinks that that's folly. Only you, as a believer, can understand that. And therefore, only you, as a true believer, can be truly wise. As a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can give over your hurts and your anxieties. To God, your Father, through Jesus Christ. That's wisdom. The Catechism also quotes that the Lord Jesus Christ has been made our righteousness as well. In other words, He gives you that righteousness. Do you know what that means? That means that you do not have to feel guilty about your sins. Not that you should not mourn your sins. Not that you should not fight against your sins. Oh yes, you should fight against your sins with all your might. But that means that when you are sorry for your sins and do your best not to sin, even though you fail all the time, that then your guilt is nevertheless forgiven through Jesus Christ. For what has he done? He has fulfilled the law for you. That's what righteousness means. You are now in a right relationship to the lawgivers. In other words, He has made everything right between you and God who gave you the law. And then He says that He has also been made your sanctification. Another big word, sanctification. Well, sanctification has to do with holiness, it has to do with purity. By the blood of Christ you have been washed from the pollution of your sins. Sanctification is spoken of, especially with regard to the Holy Spirit. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ sent you his Holy Spirit. He sent you his Holy Spirit to wash you, to burn away your impurities. You do not have to feel dirty. Even when others accuse you of wrongdoing, and you know that you are also a little bit guilty or perhaps very guilty, you can hold your head high. A Christian can face whatever comes to him or her head on because he or she is a child of God. Do you find this hard to believe? Well, the Holy Spirit will also assure you. He assures you of eternal life. Remember, Lord, Day one, And through the Holy Spirit, you are given a new life. And finally, it says that he has been made your redemption. Redemption has to do with the fact that once you belonged to Satan, to this world, and to whatever held you captive the desires of the flesh, And that now you have been set free from it all. You have been set free from Satan and from his dominion. You have been rescued. That's what redemption means. Brothers and sisters, and that includes you boys and girls, this is important for you and for me to confess. Our life depends on it. Our eternal well-being depends on it. Christ is the great mediator both as man and as God. As such he has given us wonderful gifts gifts that last into eternity and once again this afternoon those gifts have been opened for you. Receive them from God and be thankful. Be thankful that we confess that truth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that he is our mediator, and that he is our mediator as both God and as man. Be thankful that we can confess that truth with the church of all ages, with our brothers and sisters in the Lord throughout the centuries. May that continue to be our confession, namely that we belong to our faithful Savior Jesus Christ, who, as both God and man, is the great mediator. Amen.